Good morning. I'm going to attempt to make this music stand tall enough for me. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, that's great. Good morning, everybody. It is always good to be with you. I bring greetings from folks over at Church on the Ave. Um, they got to hear this sermon last night because we're doing this swap thing, which I've really enjoyed, um, not just because it frees us up from a little bit of preaching, but also because we get to hear different voices in our community. hope that's a blessing for you this morning, too. Uh, we're going to have a look this morning at two texts, uh, one from the Old Testament, the Old Testament lectionary reading from Genesis 3, the first seven verses, and then we're going to look at the gospel text from Matthew chapter 4, the first 11 verses. So here are these words from Scripture. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will certainly not die. The serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And from Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. This is the word of the Lord. So this week we, as has been noted, we entered into the season of Lent. This is the season in which we prepare ourselves for the events of Holy Week, for Jesus' death and resurrection. Traditionally, this is a season of fasting. It's a season of self-denial and introspection. In Lent, we spend these 40 days taking a hard 
an honest look at ourselves and at the world around us so that on Easter we can revel in the glory and the grace of the resurrection. And I can't think of a better text for getting us into Lent than the one we've just read. In a lot of ways, this season is modeled on this story, right? The, the 40 days, fasting, the self-denial, the introspection, it's all there. And so maybe helpful for us is to think about Lent as our time in the wilderness, right? Our time to take a good look inside of ourselves and see what's really going on in there. So our text begins with this little line, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. There is a lot packed into that little line. Uh, First off, it starts with the word then, which begs the question, what just happened, right? And in this case, what just happened was Jesus' baptism. That uh, incredible event where the voice from heaven identifies Jesus as the beloved son of God, right? This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. These are the words that immediately precede our text. And so we can imagine Jesus heading off into the wilderness with these words, these incredible uh, affirming, identity-shaping words still ringing in his ears. But this move from baptism to wilderness, it feels a little whiplashy, doesn't it? Um, We go from this moment of extreme spiritual affirmation to what must have felt to Jesus like spiritual exile. It's a big pendulum swing. But these sequences... The sequence of these events makes a little more sense if we consider what Matthew, our author, is up to here. So you maybe know Matthew wrote primarily for a Jewish audience, right? And so he draws a lot of parallels between the history of Israel and the person of Jesus. And nowhere is that clearer than in this text. So if we go back to the book of Exodus, uh, Israel's in slavery in Egypt, They cry out to God and God rescues them, right? God sends the plagues. Moses leads them out. And when the Pharaoh pursues them, God opens up the Red Sea for them to pass through. And we look at that Red Sea crossing. What we see there is a baptism, right? It's Israel's baptism. They're facing death. They go down into the water and God brings them up again. And this salvific act marks them as God's people, just like our baptism marks us as God's people. But then what follows? Israel spends 40 years in the wilderness before they enter into the promised land, 40 years of testing. For Jesus, it's 40 days. The parallels are kind of impossible to miss. I am sorry about this microphone. It just keeps sliding on me. I'll just pull it out a little bit. I think that'll help. So, like Israel, Jesus is baptized and then he's tested in the wilderness. The question is, will Jesus fare any better than Israel did? Right? 
Um, Israel who revolted when they got hungry. Israel who made themselves an idol to worship while Moses was up on top of the mountain. They didn't do very well in the wilderness. What about Jesus? Well, we'll see in just a moment, but first some comments about the one who's doing the tempting here. So it's, it's the spirit who leads Jesus into the wilderness, but it's the devil who tempts him. And we could say a lot about what that means. That It seems here like the spirit is making use of the devil. Uh, we could spend a lot of time on that, but we don't have the time to spend on that. So suffice it to say, God is sovereign, right? Over everything and everyone, including the devil. That much we can say with confidence. And we can also say with confidence that the devil does not have any good intentions here. He's not willingly cooperating with the spirit, right? And we know this not just because of the temptations we'll look out in just a moment. We know this already by the designation of the devil as devil. That word, devil, uh, in Greek it's diabolos, comes from the same root as the verb diabolain, which means to split. And this gives us some sense of what the devil is all about. The devil's intent is always to split, to divide, to drive a wedge between us and God and between us and other people. We see this so clearly in this text that we read from Genesis 3. Uh, The devil comes to Adam and Eve in the form of a serpent looking to drive a wedge between them and God. He twists God's words. He sows seeds of doubt. He tempts them into disobedience. And it works, right? He splits the relationship. He severs the intimacy between God and humans. And in no time at all, that split leads to a split between Adam and Eve. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Don't blame me, blame her. And the splits have only multiplied ever since. So this is the devil. He is the splitter, the wedge driver. And this is just what we see in the temptations in our text Three times the devil comes at Jesus looking to drive a wedge between him and his father. So with the first temptation, the devil appeals to Jesus' stomach. Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days, and so the devil hits him where he's hurting. If you are the son of God, turn these stones to bread. In other words, if it's true what God said, if you really are his son, if he really loves you, If he's really pleased with you, well, then he couldn't possibly want you to suffer like this, could he? Why don't you just go ahead, take matters into your own hands, make some bread. That's probably what he would want because he wants you to be happy, right? Because he loves you? I wonder for us if any of those questions have ever flitted into our minds when we're worried about making rent, we don't get that job that we were hoping for, when health issues arise or we're tired of waiting for that right someone to come along, 
I wonder if we've ever heard this voice whispering at us. God couldn't possibly want this for you. Could he? Because, I mean, he loves you. In the same way that the devil tries to make Jesus question the truth spoken at his baptism, the devil tries to make us question the truth spoken at our baptism because the word God speaks to us is the same as the one he spoke over his son. You are my child, my son, my daughter, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. That's what he tells us. But sometimes... In our moment of need, in our disappointments, in our loneliness, when we suffer in our bodies and in our minds, it can be real easy to doubt those words. To doubt that God really loves us, that that God has our best interest at heart because we perceive God as withholding the things that we think we need and that we know we want. And no, we don't have the ability that Jesus had to just snap our fingers and conjure up the desires of our heart. That's not our temptation. Our temptation is to mistrust God, to resent God. And that resentment becomes a wedge, splitting us off from the one who loves us, which is, of course, the devil's goal. In Jesus' case, he sees right through the temptation. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So to answer the devil, Jesus goes to Scripture. He uses this verse from Deuteronomy to expose the lie in the devil's temptation. There are more important things than bread. Not that bread is unimportant, right? Jesus is going to go on and produce it in mass for thousands of people. He's going to invest it with sacramental meaning at the Lord's Supper. Bread is important. But as important as it is, clinging to God, being attentive to God, listening to the voice of God, there's no life apart from that. So that's the first temptation. Round one, Jesus one, devil zero. For round two, the devil tries to play the game on Jesus' terms. Uh, Jesus uses scripture to refute him, so he hits back with scripture. Uh, He takes Jesus to the top of the temple. He says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written... He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. That's Psalm 91. I don't know if you heard about this. Um, A few weeks ago, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, um, she made the claim to some reporters that she prays daily for her arch nemesis, the President Donald Trump. Uh, The President's son... Don Jr., he responded to that comment on Twitter. He said, the likelihood of Nancy Pelosi praying for Trump is about the same as the likelihood of Satan running around quoting the scriptures. (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. (laughs) 
One Twitter response that uh, I saw suggested Don Jr. must have gotten his religious education at Trump University, but <laughs> that's as far as I'm going to go with that. Because, of course, that's exactly what we see here, right? The devil quotes scripture at Jesus to tempt him to take a leap off the temple. Now, the temptation here is similar to the first one in that the goal is the same, right? The goal is to drive a wedge between Jesus and his father. But the approach is a little different this time. Instead of tempting Jesus to take matters into his own hands, the devil tempts Jesus to force his father's hand. Go ahead, take a leap. If you really are the son of God, if you believe that's true, then prove it. Jump. Now, this one's kind of tricky for us as Christians. Um, Because on one level, it almost sounds reasonable, right? As Christians, we're supposed to put ourselves out there. We're supposed to take risks, to take the leap of faith and trust that God is going to catch us. If we're not doing things that force us to depend on God showing up, well, then what are we even doing, right? The thing is, there's a pretty big difference between taking risks for the sake of Christ and his kingdom and making stupid choices to prove what good Christians we are. The one comes from a place of humility and love for God. The other from a sense of pride or, or from a, a place of insecurity, right? An insecurity that needs God to prove himself, an insecurity that doesn't quite trust those baptismal words. And so it requires some further proof that God is, in fact, on our side. So the temptation here is for Jesus to be foolhardy, right? To, to do something spectacular, but also stupid. For the sake of proving to himself and to anyone else who's watching that he really is the Son of God. But again, he doesn't take the bait. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test period. And that's round two. Jesus two, devil zero. For the third temptation, the devil takes Jesus to the top of a mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And like a good home shopping network salesperson, he says, this can all be yours for the low, low price. Bending a knee. Just bow down and worship. It's all yours. Now, this temptation raises some big theological questions about the nature and the extent of the devil's authority. We're not going to get into that today. I'll just note that Jesus doesn't argue with the devil here on whether or not these, these kingdoms are his to offer, right? And I think that in and of itself says something. But what's the nature of this third temptation? Well, this time around, the devil tries to split Jesus the Son from God the Father by offering him precisely what he's come for. And the whole reason Jesus has come in the flesh is to win back the kingdoms of the world. It's to reestablish the kingship of God over all things. This is why he's come. And here, it's offered to him on a silver platter. It's a shortcut. 
a way for Jesus to grasp power without having to go the way of the cross. Power is what the Catholic theologian Henry Nouwen sees as the primary temptation here. And it's a temptation that we Christians have always struggled with, right? Um, Nouwen has this little book called In the Name of Jesus. If you haven't read it, you should. It's fantastic. Um, In that book, he asks this question, what makes the temptation of power so seemingly irresistible? And this is how he answers. Maybe it is that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God. Easier to control people than to love people. Easier to own life than to love life. Jesus asks, do you love me? We ask, can we sit at your right hand and your left hand in your kingdom? Ever since the snake said, the day you eat of this tree, your eyes will be open and you will be like gods, knowing good from evil, we have been tempted to replace love with power. If you're anything like that, like me, those words maybe feel like a bit of a gut punch. The temptation to power is real because life is chaotic because people hurt us, because there's just so much that's broken in this world and we want so desperately to fix it. Just give me the power. I'll use it well. At some level, we are all those characters in the Lord of the Rings who one by one are tested by the allure of the ring of power, right? Some of them resist. Others are driven mad, obsessing about it longing for it. We look back over history. The church doesn't have a great track record on this. We haven't always wielded power well. We can look at the Crusades, Inquisitions, but also you don't have to go back that far. Just look at our political situation and the mess we've made of things. We're as bad as anyone when it comes to grasping for power, even if it means bending the knee to the devil. We do our political calculus. We tell ourselves that the ends justify the means, and we vote for the strong man who will fight for our interests. Unless you think I'm just talking about political conservatives, I'm not. It's happening on all sides. The temptation to power is real. But the call of Christ is to love, not power. It's to love people, not control them. To love God, not play God. And of course, this is what Jesus models for us in this third temptation. He's offered all the power. He's offered a shortcut a way to bypass the suffering that he knows is coming. All he has to do is bend a knee. But out of love, he refuses the easy way out. Out of love for his father, the only one who deserves worship, 
one to whom he clings, the one from whom he refuses to be split, but also out of love for us. Because Jesus knows that the kingdom he's come to establish, it isn't one of forced obedience. He's not come to enslave us. He's come to set us free, to rescue us, so that our allegiance to him flows from a place of love and gratitude, not from a place of obligation. But all of that means that there is no bypassing the cross. There's no shortcut to salvation. Love requires suffering. It was true for Jesus. It's true for us. Choosing love over power makes us vulnerable. It sets us up to get hurt by other people and by this very broken world that we live in. But that's the way of Christ. And so my prayer for all of us is simple. It's that God would grant us the grace to choose love over power. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks. We thank you that where all before you had failed, you did not. You resisted the temptation the temptation of self-interest, the temptation of being spectacular, the temptation of choosing love over power, or power over love. God, I pray that you would give us the grace to do the same, to choose love always. In Christ we pray, amen.